Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky. Welcome back to another episode of America's 360. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Wilson Center, and America's 360 is a collaboration among the centers, Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. In this episode of America's 360, we'll discuss President-elect Biden's potential plans for and policies for the Americas with a special focus on Canada, Mexico, Central America, Venezuela, Brazil, and Argentina. So how might the Biden administration see the region and its priorities during its first year? And what countries might take priority? And how will current relations under the Trump administration affect the future of regional relations? While some leaders in the Americas will see the change in leadership as a welcome break, others may face a rude awakening. This week's episode is the second of a two-part discussion with our special guest, Dan Restrepo. Dan is a former senior director for the Americas at the National Security Council under President Obama. He continues to advise Democrats on the Western Hemisphere. And Dan is also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. You'll hear from him in just a minute. But first, let's say hello to our panel of experts. Welcome back to the program, Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Hi, Benjamin. Hey, John. Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John. Hey, Ricardo. The Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hi, John. Hey, Chris. Latin American Program Director Cynthia Arnson. Hi, John. Hi, Cindy. And Mexico Institute Director and Vice President for New Initiatives, Duncan Wood. Hey, Duncan. Hey, John. As previewed, our special guest today is Dan Restrepo. Hello, Dan. Thanks for joining us once again. My pleasure. So to begin our discussion with Dan, we're going to move from north to south and begin with Canada Institute Director Chris Sands. Chris, take it away. Thanks very much, John. Dan, welcome to the program. I I wanted to ask you, you know, the Canadians have been almost uh, giddy uh, with the change from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, someone that they know and genuinely uh, like. From your perspective, is there a danger that Canadians are, are too excited uh, about this change? Would you tamp those expectations down? Or do you think that we really are going to see what most Canadians expect, which is a restoration of warm personal relations with the president of the United States? Well, Chris, I think this is obviously my take, personal take, but I actually don't think the Canadians are too overly excited. Um, I think um, in Joe Biden, they're going to have somebody who understands the importance of Canada. Um, I don't think it was a mistake that Justin Trudeau was the first international call uh, that uh, President-elect Biden took, um, and, and in part because you can do a lot of work if you're a U.S. president um, with Canada, right? You can do you can do um, the bilateral work, which is obviously important. Um, you can do the North America work uh, in terms of global global competitiveness and dealing with COVID and the economic recovery that awaits us all. Uh, you can do alliance work as members of NATO. Uh, you can do G7 work. Um, you can do G20 work. Uh, so, so Canada, Canada is a way to do is to touch a lot of bases. Uh, it's kind of one-stop shopping, if you will, um, in terms of what can be done um, as the United States looks to to reemerge into the world as a constructive player. Um, and so, I think to the extent that the Canadians um, see that um, in a Biden presidency. Um, I, I, you know, again, just just my humble opinion, but I I don't think they're wrong in looking at it that way. 
Dan, one one question that's got everyone thinking, though, uh, we are jointly restricting the border and Canada is trying to buy vaccine internationally because it lacks a vaccine capability domestically. Is this an area where the two governments uh, can work together both to ease border constraints and also coordinate in COVID response? Chris, as you know, the notion of North American pandemic cooperation isn't new. Um, it, it dates back um, at least to George W. Bush um, and, and obviously was picked up and expanded upon um, by the Obama administration across changes in government in Canada and in Mexico. Uh, it was well um, executed or, or well exercised, if you will, in the context of H1N1 uh, in, in, in early 2009. Um, so the notion that the United States should um, have a cooperative posture with our closest neighbors, Canada and Mexico, on pandemic response and recovery, um, again, is a little bit like saying the sun should rise in the east and should set in the west. Um, it's obviously not the approach that uh, the current president, the current president of the United States, has taken. Um, but but I don't think it's a a, a radical notion to think um, that more cooperation is to come. Um, again, on COVID and a host of other issues um, with with Canada. Duncan Wood, you're next. Thank you, John. Uh, Dan, you know, I, uh, you look south, you look at Mexico, you look at a country that is uh, being hit incredibly hard, not just by the pandemic, but by record homicide rates, an economic recession prior to the pandemic. You've got rampant corruption. You've got attacks on democratic institutions. And you have a president there who is sending a very clear message at this point in time that he's not particularly enthusiastic about cooperating with the Biden administration and sending a message that to him, the number one issue right now is Mexican sovereignty. We've heard in just in the past few days that he wants to take away immunity for DEA agents operating in, in Mexico, essentially eliminating any use that they may have there. How do you engage with an AMLO administration that just doesn't want to play ball? And let me give you my, my, my five cents here. I think that the, the best thing that you guys can possibly do on the on the Democratic side, the best thing that the, 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 the Biden administration can do is to send a very clear and strong message at this point in time that Mexico matters and that Mexico will be a target for a Biden administration. So I'm, I'm not going to give Joe Biden advice here, um, the, but, but I'm going to kind of state again what is, again, I think a relative statement of the up, um, and it's something I say all the time. There's no country in the world that affects the United States on a day-to-day -day basis more than does Mexico. Um, and it's important that the United States, at its highest levels, treat Mexico accordingly. Um, I think Joe Biden understands that. Um, so I had the honor and privilege of going to Mexico on a, on a tricky trip with Joe Biden in March of uh, 2012, um, in which um, he sat down with the then three leading presidential candidates to deliver a very clear message that Mexico matters to the United States, Mexico is important to the United States, um, and the, the United States at that time was looking forward to working with whomever the democratic process of Mexico elected president of, of Mexico at that time. Um, and that, that was the election that elected Enrique Peña Nieto, but I think the, the message holds, right? The message stands. Um, one of the three candidates that he met with at that time um, was Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Um, the, I was in that meeting. Um, so, and Joe Biden gets the importance of Mexico. He went several times later after my time, during Ricardo's time at the White House, and then even after that, if memory serves me correctly. Um, 
And and so I think Mexico is going to be front of mind for a Biden administration um, because it should be front of mind for any president of the United States um, who is looking out for the basic national interests of the United States. Um, is the Mexico relationship going to have its uneven moments? It's absolutely going to have its uneven moments. Um, but is it unworkable? By no stretch of the imagination is it unworkable. Um, I, and, and again, I think Joe Biden, there, there's no on-the-job learning here um, to be done when it comes to, again, the importance and the complexity of the relationship um, between our two countries across pretty much any issue that we could all think of. Um, so, so yeah, I think it, it'll be top priority um, because it kind of has to be. Cindy Arnson, you're next. Dan, I have uh, questions that are linked about Colombia and, and Venezuela, which share a long border. Um, in this last U.S. election cycle, Colombia did something really, or certain Colombians did something that was really unprecedented, which was openly support uh, the re-election of Donald Trump um, in a way that became, I think, so extreme that the U.S. embassy took this hugely unusual step of calling on Colombians to please stop intervening or whatever the word was that they used. How quickly do you think U.S.-Columbia policy will come back to a, a more stable position given its long sort of bipartisan status? Um, you know, in light of that, and then and related, do you think that um, that a Biden administration is likely to um, make good on a promise that was made just recently in a trip of um, National Security Advisor O'Brien and others uh, to Colombia to offer some sort of $5 billion mega package um, of assistance um, to Colombia. So that's that's the Colombia piece of it. Um, and the Venezuela piece, obviously Venezuela has a huge impact on all of its neighbors through this massive exodus um, of refugees. Do you sense, um, especially given what took place on December 6th, um, that there will be some kind of fundamental rethink within the Biden administration about policies towards how to achieve, you know, free and fair elections or a democratic transition in Venezuela, however you want to um, describe that, and the role of um, economic sanctions in, in that effort? Countries. Yeah, those are those are two very short, specific questions that you had for me there, Cindy. Um, so let me do Colombia first. Uh, and and as you well know, Cindy, um, I, I was quite outspoken in the context of the campaign um, in calling out um, certain Colombian political figures who were, um, in my view, interfering in the election process in the democratic process in the United States by openly campaigning. Um, and 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 using resources, official resources, to back a candidate in the United States. Um, I thought then, and I think now, that that was a fundamental error. Um, I thought then, and I think now, that it undermines um, what you mentioned, which was the bipartisan nature of support for the U.S.-Columbia relationship, um, particularly in Congress. Um, and um, and so I think that I think. That'll have to get worked through. Um, the, 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 the thing that, you know, the good thing, if you will, um, is, and this is kind of a recurring theme in, in my answers here. Um, so, so, so I sound a bit of like a broken record. Um, Joe Biden's got a long history with Colombia, um, from kind of plan, actually from before plan Colombia as a member of the Center for Foreign Relations Committee, 
uh, through Plan Colombia, through the approval of the Columbia, U.S.-Columbia Free Trade Agreement during the Obama administration. Um, and so there's not a lot. You, you don't have to convince Joe Biden of the importance of a strong U.S.-Columbia relationship. Um, and the nice thing about Joe Biden, in stark contrast with the current president of the United States, um, is that U.S. policy is going to be driven by U.S. interests and not personal whims or personal interests. Um, and, and that's a huge, I mean, again, it's one of those things that I can't believe we have to say it out loud, but coming out of the four years that we do, we have to say it out loud. Um, so I think the national interest is going to drive the future of the U.S.-Columbia relationship as it should. Um, I think there's some repair work that the Colombians need to do, but I think most of that is in Congress. Um, and, it, and it'll be up to the Colombians to do that. Um, you know, Adam Bowler's $5 billion. Um, I think there's a lot of, and Adam Bowler being the head of the Development Finance Corporation, which is what you were talking about. Look, I think there's a lot of devil in the details here. It's not assistance. Um, it's loan guarantees. Um, I think it's above market rate loan guarantees. Um, so it's not entirely clear to me what, and quite frankly, I don't think it's entirely clear to anyone, um, what the outgoing Trump administration has actually promised the Colombians and what the Colombians think they've been promised. Um, so I think they'll actually, you know, that'll have to get unpacked um, on the other side. In terms of kind of Venezuela policy, um, to be as brief as I can, and this is, again, the personal opinion in terms of how I think you should you should address the question of Venezuela. I think the people of Venezuela should be centered in U.S. policy, right? Um, and I think you see this in, in what Joe Biden said as a candidate in, the, in a couple of different ways. Um, he made very clear that um, granting temporary protective status for Venezuelans in the United States is a priority for him. Um, you know, I don't think there's any reason not to expect that. Um, I think support for Venezuela's neighbors, right? Venezuela's neighbors have shouldered an enormous burden um, in the largest mass migration that the hemisphere has seen in quite some time. Um, and, um, you know, even before COVID and now having to do it in the midst of COVID. Um, the, and it's the most under-resourced, internationally under-resourced refugee response um, on the globe at the moment. Um, so I think you need a little bit more U.S. leadership there. You need more U.S. leadership in terms of humanitarian assistance to the Venezuelan people who are still suffering in Venezuela under an authoritarian um, regime in, in the form of the Maduro regime, um, a regime that has wantonly and brazenly used food um, as a uh, tool of political coercion, um, particularly in the run-up to the sham election that was just held. Um, or the sham that was just held. I don't think we should actually use the E word to describe what happened um, on December 5th um, in Venezuela. So, I, you know, I think we can expect a centering of the Venezuelan people in U.S. Uh, policy going forward. Um, I think you should anticipate kind of, you know, the targeted sanctions. I think we all need to remember started under President Obama and Vice President Biden um, aimed at regime figures. Um, I believe Ricardo, you were still senior director when you guys went to Panama. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the hubbub that happened ahead of the the, uh, the summit of the Americas in Panama was about targeted sanctions against regime figures in Venezuela, um, and the national national security emergency that triggered or, or allowed for those sanctions. Um, so I think targeted sanctions are very much part of the mix going forward. Um, I also think, as he said as a candidate, like looking for 
you know, the ultimate goal here has got to be free and fair elections so that Venezuelan people can, re, you know, re restore their democracy. Um, and how can the United States be a constructive um, player in that process after? And again, I, I think in, in like coming off of four years that were an abject failure on that front, right? Donald Trump, if his stated policy was to make Nicolás Maduro less entrenched than he was the day he took office, he, Donald Trump, took office, well, if that's the measuring stick, he failed utterly. Um, and, and so you're coming off this abject failure. Um, regional diplomacy is kind of a mess on this issue right now. Um, so I, I think you can anticipate the United States trying to play a much more constructive role and, and hopefully getting us where all of us want to see, which is where the Venezuelans get to decide what the future of Venezuela looks like. Ricardo. So uh, that's a good segue into uh, uh, Brazil, where actually you see the convergence of a few of the issues, not just the question of the regional action of Venezuela, but it's also a place where you see our, uh, our concerns on China playing out on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. And crucially, uh, our uh, concerns as a country related to climate change, and particularly the Biden administration's concerns and interest in putting uh, climate at the center of administration policy, has led to a very, uh, let's say, a, a very tough start in the bilateral relationship between uh, the incoming administration and uh, President Bolsonaro's government in Brazil. How do you see uh, a president, a president-elect Biden, dealing with uh, Brazil, but also really looking at it where it is today, as opposed to where it was when when he was vice president? Right. Um, so, so look, I, I feel unworthy of answering the questions. Um, from you all in every country, uh, but I, I feel particularly unworthy of answering a Ricardo Zuniga question on Brazil because with usually when I have a Ricardo a Brazil question, I just turn it around and ask Ricardo. Um, look, I think one of the things that you underscore is important here: the Brazil that Joe Biden will face as president of the United States isn't the Brazil that he left behind um, when he was vice president of the United States. Just like the Mexico that he's going to be dealing with isn't the Mexico that he left behind. Um, and, and kind of almost, we can say this for almost every country in the region. And the centering of climate is going to make for a complicated start, at the very least, um, to a bilateral relationship with Brazil. Um, you have in the president of the United States, someone who recognizes or will have someone who recognizes kind of the existential nature of the climate crisis um, and the need for action now. Like, it, this isn't one of these things that we can kind of like, you know, uh, mosey up to over time. Um, we got to start working this problem globally. Um, yeah. Um, or, or beyond. Yeah. At this point. Um, and, and so I think that's going to that's going to be complicated. Um, I think the I think the Brazilians um, seem to think, uh, because you mentioned China here as well. Um, I think the Brazilians seem to think that, like. China might be their get out of jail card on climate issues. Uh, my guess is that things aren't going to quite work that way. Um, that, um, that, that A, again, countries in the region over the course of the last four years got very accustomed to a purely transactional approach from the United States. Um, that ever, there was a deal to be made on everything. Um, a bunch of it personal to the president and his family, but even leaving that aside, on those rare occasions when U.S. national interests played a role, um, there was kind of a there was a clear put and take um, in in relationships. 
I'm not sure that clear put and take is going to work the same way um, in a Biden administration. Um, and particularly, so I don't think it's if, you know, Bolsonaro decides that he's going to, you know, be tough on China, that that means he doesn't have to also engage on climate issues. Like, uh, just I just don't see the world working that way. Um, because it's not enough. Like the existential challenge that the hemisphere and the world face is climate. Um, and look, and the Brazilians are important to the climate conversation. Like it's, it's, that, you know, that's undeniably true. Um, that Brazil has to have a seat at the table. Um, the question is going to be what do the Brazilians choose to do with that seat? Um, and whether they choose to be constructive in some way. Um, or if they kind of go down this denialism and think that that's a kind of viable way forward. Benjamin Gadan, you're up. And speaking of countries that have dramatically changed their policies, including to the United States, since Joe Biden was in office, I wanted to ask about Argentina before we conclude. You know, when the vice president left the White House, Argentina had, you know, arguably its most pro-U.S. president in 20 years, pro-trade, keeping U.S. adversaries generally at arm's length. Now the Peronists are back in office. You, you know, worked with them closely when you were um, senior director of the National Security Council. So my question is, how do you imagine this relationship going? The Argentines in general, you know, sometimes are content to push the U.S. out of the region, kind of live on their own. In this case, they need the U.S. support at the International Monetary Fund. And yet they're squeamish about trade, squeamish about security cooperation with the U.S., you know, not an easy natural partner with this government. You know, how's it going to play out? Um, I would say I dealt with the Peronistas rather than worked closely with them, just on semantics there in terms of my time in government. Uh, <laughs> the it, look, it, and and the interesting thing here is that I think Joe Biden has experience on kind of both. You know, the, yes, the, the yes, the Macri government was in office when Joe Biden left the vice presidency, um, but he he also spent time um, in the vice presidency dealing with the presidency of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, um, and a relationship that was not particularly functional between the United States and Argentina at that time. Um, it was one in which, quite frankly, the Argentines, as you point out, kind of were, were the, the Argentina was quite isolated at that time, um, kind of by kind of auto isolated um, in terms of their their position vis-a-vis um, the world and particularly global markets. That's not the case today, um, as you note. The IMF um, negotiation is a negotiation that's very much underway. Um, the and and the president-elect um, had a conversation with the president of Argentina not long ago. It was kind of one of the first Latin America calls um, that was taken during the transition. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for Argentina um, to um, kind of signal and 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 like what what is it that the Argentines kind of bring to the relationship um, beyond this kind of need at the IMF. Um, I think the IMF thing largely will sort itself out at the IMF. Um, and then the relate, and then kind of the bigger question becomes like, what is the utility of a relationship with Argentina? And I think it's interesting that like Bolsonaro just found Alberto's phone number after a kind of extended period of time of not realize, right? Um, which I think probably tells you about how much more about what Bolsonaro thinks, like finds himself suddenly in the world all by himself. 
um, because he's kind of cut off from China. He's like, in a fight with China. He's worried about what's coming um, vis-a-vis the United States. And so he kind of turned to China. But I think there's something, there's potentially something interesting in that fact um, that all of a sudden Jair Bolsonaro found Alberto Fernandez's telephone number um, and and kind of views, you know, Mercosur, like all, all of a sudden is talking about Mercosur as like a vehicle to do something. So I think part of this is like folks sorting out what it is that they actually want to do um, and not being purely reactive to a United States, but rather kind of what what is it that, how, you know, how can this relationship work in a mutually beneficial way as you define it, um, rather than kind of sitting on their hands and waiting for Washington to declare to them how the relationship shall be. Um, and that's one of the tricks of partnership, right? Like, and it was one of the challenges, certainly, that I found kind of, you know, again, going, looking back for a second, at the beginning of, of the Obama administration, you had kind of this change, kind of very much embrace of, we, you know, we're, we come to work in partnership with countries in the region. And a lot of countries struggled with that concept. They struggled with the concept because they didn't quite know what to do with it, right? They were used to either blaming everything on the United States. Um, and or, because oftentimes it was an and, um, waiting for the United States to solve all the available problems, right? Um, and when kind of the United States suddenly took a posture of that's what, that wasn't its posture, people didn't quite know what to do. Um, in, in a little, I think a, there's a little bit of that happening again or potentially going to happen again um, with the understanding, again, that like COVID is going to define the opening stanzas of a Biden administration in the United States and everywhere else. Uh, um, and so it's going to define these opening stanzas, but it's not unidefinitional, right? It's not just the United States' definition that matters here. Um, if this is actually going to work for the benefit of people, you know, the, the billion plus people in the Western Hemisphere, um, countries in the region, including the Argentines, kind of have to sort out what is it that they want to do. And Restrepo, thank you very much for joining us, not for just one, but for two episodes of America's 360. We hope you enjoyed it and that we can call on you again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks. And also thanks to our regulars, Cindy, Benjamin, Chris, Ricardo, Duncan, and special thanks, of course, to Dan. If there's a topic or a guest you'd like to hear from, please let us know. You can reach us via email at americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. And we'd obviously love to hear from you. Until then, for all of us at the center, Uh, We wish you happy holidays, and we thank you for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.